If you're enjoying getting better acquainted with me and with my guests, maybe you'd like to help other people find out about the show. There's a few easy ways to do that. You can go on iTunes if you've got five minutes and leave a review saying what you think of it. That helps it get higher rankings on iTunes and stuff like that. What the show really needs is word of mouth. And in this internet age, that means liking the show's page on Facebook or retweeting it or sharing the link to all of your Facebook friends or Twitter followers, doing whatever you need to do in whatever social networking site you use. And if you don't use a social networking site, well, hey, you can just tell your friends or email your friends and tell them about what's going on. By all means, attack the trucks behind you. I will attack them. No problem. Trying to get it. Can you I, hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Do you good. need me to be closer? Well, no, I, I'm finding in too many of the podcasts, I'm vastly louder than the person I'm interviewing. So I'm probably not the same uh, for me, though. Well, I don't know. I, I think it's to do, it's, even people who are loud that I've been talking to, I think it's mm. to, something to do with the tone of my voice. I don't know. It's how you can walk dogs and stuff, yeah. Yeah. Are we going yet? Uh, we are, in fact, going, yeah. Oh, that's good. You didn't uh, even know there could have been uh, a gem uh, over uh, there. I normally tell people straight away, but with you, Vaughan, I thought I'd better get it on quick. Cause, uh, there's a in case there's like a, a glimmer of genius. You don't thing. know what's going to happen, really. Right. Flying so... <laughs> Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. So today we are getting better acquainted with Vaughan. Hello Vaughan. Hello Dave. <laughs> um, and there's two stock questions that I'm asking everyone, so I'll get them out of the way nice and quick. How did you meet me? On the internet, like all good relationships, <laughs> Dave. Um, there was uh, Gumtree, which brings a lot of relationships to bear, and you were asking for people to join a band, and I was looking to join a band, and uh, so I replied, and you seemed to be very okay with the uh, all instruments policy, and then off we went. And uh, the other question is, what do you do? Uh, <laughs> I do uh, corporate restructuring, which is um, <laughs> it's part of being a chartered accountant. Um, which is obviously what Dave and I get on so well. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I do, I do like music and other matters. So uh, you know, it was only a matter of time before we cross each other's path, <laughs> presumably. I can't imagine not meeting you, Vaughn. Well, yeah, no. having met you, possibilities in the universe. Yeah, I've got a big list of suggestions that Vaughn gave me of areas we could talk about, which is good. It's been a couple of interviews that I've had big lists. Mostly, I've had to make my own, uh, and I've added some for myself because. Uh, Vaughan or the V-Man as he likes to be called when he's feeling frisky. Frisky? <laughs> Hardly. Uh, no, and, well that's interesting because I can just jump there. The original, um, well when I came over to the UK obviously I was just staying with a bunch of people. Funny I find Gumtree also. Um, and one of them just gave me the nickname. But uh, you know, it's amazing how a Gumtree relationship can be profound and name altering. But you like the, the you like the nickname so much, you brought it into the band. Really, There's so. a lot worse nicknames it's for me good out name. there. I think so it's you know, good. It's, it's it's good. It is good. Um, though I'm now known as Vornographic in my current band, which you know I suppose is what we'd call a bad pun. I think Vornographic is a is a great pun. <laughs> it's very descriptive. Uh, uh, yeah, and uh, in some ways accurate. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I'm Vaughn to be wild. That's not. I don't think that's as good. No, 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 no. So that was just off the cuff. No, yeah. it's good. It's good. Right. It's all good. Um, so, 
What attracted you to the bagpipe? Um, my next neighbour played when I was very, very young. So I heard it and uh, then I was in that phase because all young guys do karate don't they they do like, like girls do ballet and uh, horse riding yes that's sexist but you know it's a stereotype okay. uh, yeah I was doing karate and then I, because I was the fat kid I was getting um, I was I was taking a bit of hammering in karate particularly when you were fighting against people in your weight division who were much older uh, so stop that uh, looking for something new and uh, this guy uh, suggested going to play bagpipes and my high school was, as luck had it, the only high school in uh, my province that did it. So I joined up that way, put up with lots of abuse for lots of years, and then found it was actually quite fun. And here I am now. And so you, you initially, you didn't love it then, did you? Or you, just, you just... Um, it's, something, it's something to do. If you're a kid and you have a challenge, you try and go through it. And I think, you know, uh, you know, learning learning bagpipes was a challenge, and it seemed interesting. Uh, and my dad was is one of those people who, he, you know, he'd love to be in Britain and take me to all the air shows. He likes all the pomp and pageantry, and you know, you don't get more pomp than bagpipes. Uh, so you know, it was it seemed something that was interesting at the time. And uh, then afterwards, it's a skill that you've mastered, and you're like, well, I've got a skill. I can do this. So you know, you're not going to give it up. And then you sort of get stuck into it as, as pipe bands realise that there's no one else, so you end up just caught in this net. So it's a little bit like the mafia. <laughs> just can't get out of it. But you like it now. Well, it's more uses. Uh, I, I mean, I just say that pipe bands like the mafia, but uh, my present pipe band disapproves of all my bagpipe boys. Um, and they actually last week they asked me for all my uniform back because it's sort of like an idea of kicking me out. And after some negotiations, and then they realised they didn't have anyone else to play at the Worlds, they've kind of asked me back. So, you know, it's it's one of those things. You just can't escape it. That's and uh, even if I don't necessarily enjoy traditional bagpiping, I enjoy my bagpipe adventures with, be it like the folk dancers that I play with in Europe in strange places, or, um, you know, the punk band stuff that I do. Which well, is that's nice. it. You've sort of in- reclaimed the instrument for being something that you can just be very loud with. Well, you know, I'm probably quite loud, and I think the idea that you, um, you know, that the, that you take bagpipes into new places. I mean, I, I've I play with this group of folk dancers, and I'm not kidding when I say the youngest is 37, the oldest is 73, most of them are in their um, pensionable years, and they're the most wonderful people I've met. And they just go to countries around Europe, getting put up by other Highland dancers, well, other folk dancers. So, you know, uh, last year I was in Germany with these guys in Lederhausen, you know, feeding me, couldn't understand English. They took me to their local brewery factory. They took me to a Red Indian Museum in uh, their town, which, you know, is bizarre. Native Um, American Indian. Yeah, Native American. (laughs) Sorry, yes, those people are politically correct. Well, those people who are politically correct probably will will turn off at some point in this conversation. (laughs) Absolutely no doubt. It's a part of being South African. But I think, you know, just doing that sort of stuff. Like I played in this village called Jokiinen in Finland with like there were 5,000 inhabitants. Presume they've seen a moose. They've definitely drunk Finnish alcohol, but they certainly haven't heard bagpipes before, and they quite enjoyed it. And as a result, uh, firstly, I made new friends, I spread some culture, and uh, at the local bar, which, funny enough, was open until 2am each night, they uh, were more than happy to buy me some beers, which is, you know, well, yeah. that's, the, that's the true purpose of bagpipes, really, isn't it? Well, I, I can see it as, as, as a purpose for a bagpipe player. Mm. So you... you first got into bagpiping through uh, bagpiping bands yeah like the traditional sort of 
competitive bagpiping championship type mm. thing. It's the only way to do it because that's the only way you get a good grounding. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I learned it. And now, even though I don't necessarily, uh, you know, I do pipe band, but it can be quite hard and tough and quite demanding. There's no doubt that it's still necessary because you're still, um, it's so good to keep your technique good on that. And last year I did very little pipe band and lots of punk bands and playing in foreign countries. And I did notice that the technique sort of declines after a while. You know, you have to actually, you know, stick to your principles and, and play, you know, complex stuff to keep you going better. And that's, uh, what, like, how many bagpipers play at the same time in a competitive bagpiping band? De- depends. Um, you wouldn't want to go to a big competition without 10, um, but really good bands will have, you know, 20, 30, but, you know, anywhere from 8 to 15 is probably about the average. And it's just pipes and drums. Yeah, um, and it's very, it's a competitive world. I mean, you imagine, you think about a bagpiper and you don't imagine that they'd be doing too many crazy things, but then the band spends hours just practicing getting the right tone so they all sound identical and nice. This is no fun. Um, and then it's all playing the same notes together. And that's just the pipe band core and expressing it in the right way so that it's like the expression of one person playing bagpipes. Then you add the drums, and then you have add the bass section, and add them all together, and somehow, hopefully, you'll have a a union that will actually work and and sound really amazing and win competitions. And what's the bass section? Is that bass bagpipes or is that uh, bass bass drums? So oh, it's right. kind of like so the you know the the guy who carries the big drum the wrong way to everyone else, so we're hitting it on the side with those big uh, feather dusters. That's um, that's the bass drum, and they they're very useful because the, the whole band will keep time around them in theory. Oh right, that's right. And the others are all playing snares. Yes, uh, very tense snares. So the drummers always get very excited because they get the most tense type of snare on any drum, and it sounds really good. Um, but you know, in the end, you know, they still drummers, and there's the usual animosity, like in any band, between those who play uh, drums and those who play proper instruments. Right. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, drummers are always getting that kind of shit. Um, yeah, but they are people too. They are. Mm. Uh, some of them I know very well. Um, bagpipes are kind of your gateway into the music world. Well, I, I think so. Um, it took me a while. I'm not the most musical person. I mean, it says probably a lot that after I got my first CD player, my first CD was a bagpipe CD, then I got Scatman's World. Um, I mean, it was clearly that, you know, there was going to be a lot of work that needed to be done on me to play. Um, and at least being good at bagpipes meant I could hopefully play music. But then when I went to Apps for Everyone, I discovered that bagpipe music has no connotation to the rest of the world, which is a bit... Uh, scary isn't it that's right I mean that's the band that we were in together and that was supposed to be a very big band uh, and it was it, we got quite big uh, in our heyday there was about 14 of us or something yeah right? I mean there were, four, there were 14 there could have been more I mean I love the fact there were people from all different uh, genres of music uh, you know sexualities <laughs> genders races all in one thing not making so, a unfortunately not, there wasn't that much of a difference in races I mean in, I, I, although you do consider yourself to be black so do, do we not have an Asian person for a while uh, yeah okay there we go we had a couple of Asian people actually but, I guess they are people but they, they, they didn't stick around but yeah we had various shades of white I think you can say everyone sort of learnt things be it people learning how to react to other people um, you know you had jazz people who were trying to get their point across with, with metal heads and meeting somewhere in the middle and 
metalheads aren't really understanding some of the, the stuff, but then you sort of learn it. And then you've got a bagpiper who's completely musically illiterate to the rest of the musical world, um, you know, trying to get integrated. And that, and that taught me a lot, and that's sort of the basis of everything bagpipe-wise I've done since. And as a bonus, I felt comfortable enough to sing. So then I started singing, yeah, which, is, uh, started, which is great, isn't you it? Un- you, know? you unlocked the... Uh, the, the persona that is born on stage which is a, a very engaging thing yeah and it was, and it was great and I still smile about it because there's nothing you know you can back up on stage but being able to do a lead vocal on stage is just something else well it it's gives the audience a break it? between bagpiping as well yeah, see I know everyone goes oh we should give them a break they've heard 2.5 seconds I mean it's one of my great bugbears in life that very few bagpipers in any band are actually played for more than an intro I understand why, because of the note range, but it's a bit disappointing. Yeah, you play in a certain key, don't you, and there's not very yeah, many notes. Yeah, B flat. I think there's about four notes. We can play a C, D, E, and F, and then a couple of other notes that are flat. Uh, you know, that's, that's cool. We tried to accommodate you. And we you did, and, and changed this, At one point, we changed the song's complete key. <laughs> Which was wonderful, and, and I think that was really good, because... Um, you know, it, 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 Apple sort of made that sort of break for me from being just someone being a novelty performance at the beginning or an intro to actually someone playing something through the, through the song. So that was a you know that was something amazing that I gained from it. And you played the electronic bagpipes as well. Yes, yeah, so that was an item of much frustration because it never worked. Never worked. Never worked through the PA systems. It looked like a bicycle pump. So you've got a man gyrating with a bicycle pump <laughs> in front of his crotch on stage without making any sound. Without making any sound. <laughs> And it was, I reiterate, a bicycle pump. It was just, it was just ridiculous, wasn't it? I think it was quite, quite, quite ridiculous in, a, in an enjoyable, in an enjoyable way. I mean, you've done some pretty, pretty crazy things with your bagpipes. Yes, and um, with a bicycle pump, clearly, yeah. Yeah, and with a bicycle pump. I mean, did you do bagpiping in a bondage club, I remember you saying. I, I did, I got um, subvert, because uh, the world of fetish was something that as a foreigner, I was like, right, I'm in London, need to see these things, you know? So I nosied off to uh, a club called uh, Torture Garden. I uh, was so drunk I don't actually remember anything that happened. Um, and so I thought I need to go back, so I did. Um, and then I, I, I met I met someone uh, who sort of uh, was not any sort of relationship per se, as in something naughty or sexual, but in something, you know, where I actually learned something more about the scene, which is a very, very interesting scene. And so they recommended Subversion, and then I heard they had an alternative New Year. Um, so as a bagpiper, New Year and, and uh, Burns Night are the greatest nights of the year, because hopefully you'll be able to play bagpipes for lots of money. So if anyone's hearing this and needs a gig, you know, hook me up. Uh, yeah, he does, he, does what, he does weddings and all sorts. Weddings, funerals, bar mitzvahs, uh, stag parties, hen signs, and uh, <laughs> yeah, most, mostly weddings. Funerals are very sad. Uh, and uh, but you can also do do these. So the week after New Year's, I had a spot free, and suddenly I was like, "Oh well, there's an alternative night at a fetish club." So I hooked up with uh, I've forgotten what name she was. It began with the word mistress, as many of them do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I just played in this uh, played old Anxiety in this fetish club a week after New Year. Um, it was just good. It was good fun. Um, you know, they they were all very. Uh, Appreciative. How did the, yeah, how did, what did the fetish community make of the V-Man? Oh, I think the fetish community are like any other community. If they, they interest... I mean, this was the biggest thing about being fetish. You imagine these people are lunatics. They're people like you and me, and they're very friendly and nice and stuff, you know? Um, so, you know, bagpipes, they appreciated bagpipes like anyone else would appreciate bagpipes. <laughs> which is either like Marmite, either good or bad. But, you know, the people that are good would go, oh, no, it was very nice. 
Um, they all like my PVC kilt, so that was a good start. Yeah, I remember that PVC kilt. That was very nice and very striking. useful because um, if you if you were drunk, as can very often happen in the kilts, and you end up wiping a pie off your kilt, you have residue. Whereas PVC is non-stick. It's always good if you're drunk and still a pie. Um, Do you wear anything under your kilt? Uh, not since 1995. <laughs> 1995, I was an impressionable 14-year-old playing in a, a senior pipe band for the first time. And they insisted that they check. And, and obviously, you can imagine, it was very traumatic for me. Um, the first couple of times, you walk around naked. And I don't know whether it's actually legal for a grown man to check if you're not wearing underwear. But uh, nevertheless, I've gone through that, and I'm a bigger, better person now. Hang on, you were in a band where the grown, the, the, the band master checked to see if you had underwear? Just the first time, just okay. the first time. <laughs> you know, it's South Africa, you know, everything's more dangerous in Africa. Um, and yeah, but you know, so it was, uh, it was, it was, and I can't say that experience was fun, but playing in the, the Fetish Club was certainly unusual. Um, and so, you know, that's, it's, it's something that I might do next year again. But, uh, you know, I've, I've seen fetish, I've understood sort of what goes on. Uh, time to move on to the next thing. Well, that's right. And that's the kind of, uh, you did some busking. Yes, I did. I did busk once. I used to busk in South Africa because it's a lot easier, you know. It's a, and, uh, you know, it was okay. And then I busk in England. I don't know where to go. I've got an instrument that's ten times louder than anyone else. And that, that's that's bloody tricky. So I tried the South Bank thing. Uh, I managed to get myself a Darth Vader costume because in my bands I play now, that's you know it's a good costume. Well, you, you so, were used to wear that Darth Vader thing in apples, I think. Uh, I, I think no, I was still in my Fez phase then. I had that Egyptian costume. Yeah, yeah. But, but um, you know, and so you're you're you're, you're playing bagpipes on a Darth Vader. I don't think I've ever felt a self-conscious. You you think the mask would hide you, but it made me feel more no. You definitely you definitely had the. Darth Vader thing by the end of Apples because when we auditioned our last drummer Sam you yes, insisted yes, on wearing that, that, wearing that yes. Darth Vader yes. thing for the whole whole rehearsal and you said you were never going to be seen by Sam without your Darth Vader hat yeah. uh, which was quite stupid because if you turn if you turn it around you just see the back of the person's head there's no there's no mask there that was quite good it's a real pity Sam actually didn't see my yeah, so, well, the thing is, it was so hot in that room because that was, was in Enterprise. We went back to the, what was it called? Uh, is it is it Enterprise Studios? It was Enterprise. Enterprise, I mean, Enterprise Studios in Denmark Street, and we we rehearsed there loads at the beginning of the band, didn't we? I think every band, if you're a band and yeah. you work yourself in London, you have to rehearse at Enterprise. It's, it's a good experience. It's got history. This, I mean, uh, one of my other bands, uh, there was a chap called Kevin who rehearsed, and this next day his Facebook thing was like, I rehearsed in the same place as the Sex Pistols. Yeah. It's like, that's pretty cool. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's not the greatest. It's it, a terrible, terrible place to rehearse, but it's a really interesting. Like everyone yeah, should go history. through that experience. It's sort of like it's sort of like you know it, now uh, snogging a, a girl who was a groupie in the days of Mick Jagger. You know, she's obviously a lot of interest, but it's not necessarily <laughs> the thing you'd like to do most. You may pay for it in a way or another, um, and, and so I suppose <laughs> that's true with Enterprise. Uh, but it is it is good and it is recommended. Um, Unfortunately, I can say from a present band where the drummer urinated in the corner, it's probably not the most hygienic. But then what band room is? No, it's a sweaty... When we first started rehearsing there, you could still smoke inside. Oh, um, God, and that was so like dinosaurs. Those so first days... Was there TV there? I don't know, it was crazy. and It was like a smoke-filled room, sweat, darkness, like the sound... We'd, because we'd have different weeks, we'd have... 
you're going to have a ukulele a whole or a load of different new people because I was just accepting anybody that, that, that signed up. That was the, the kind of ethos yeah. of Apples. And if you stuck around long enough, you stayed in the band. Yeah, and that was at Enterprise. And it goes back because I'm pretty sure that that groupie's policy of accepting everyone who pitched up was probably the reason she was so experienced too. Not that I'd compare Apples to a, to a Mick Jagger groupie, but you know. You get okay, but you're still going, you're still yeah. persevering with that. <laughs> you're yeah, there's like the extended metaphors are one of the great things but about society. The sad thing is that for the the listeners, they didn't get to see the kind of look off into space, kind of wistful kind of end uh, end of yes. this end of the uh, end of the image for you. I mean, in many cases, it's summed up by that word. Uh. <laughs> but bagpiping. You've basically always gone right. I'll do anything that involves bagpiping. I'm interested in taking this bagpipe to any place. So you've been all over Europe mm. with your bagpipes, and you've done all of these crazy things. Um, and we can talk about that again. We can talk about the Europe in a minute. But didn't you once play the bagpipes for the Mystery Jets? Uh, <laughs> bringing up modes of topics. Uh, well, let me talk first about my second worst, ex- uh, second uh, most uh, long-term annoying experience yep. was when my mother, because uh, obviously I was young, I was fifteen, um, and uh, I was looking for you know things to play bagpipes, and she suggested I play at the Happy Hippo Club in at a shop in South Africa. So basically, after the Balloon Man and the Giant Green Hippo. On came Vaughn playing bagpipes for 10 years. Now I was in puberty here. I was trying to pull women. I even joined the chess club to try and pull women. You that, was a, that was a bad move in retrospect. You joined the chess club to pull, pull women. Well, if you think about it, if you're a boys' high school and you play sports against another high school, it's probably unlikely that your football team's going to play the girls' football team. But chess? No, no, no. <laughs> anyway, it needed to say it was a so, grand failure. So you would be there staring into the eyes of your opponent. He was a man and nerdy, and yeah, so it didn't really work. Okay, I mean, it's a good, I think it's a good principle. It's a good idea if you can get the female, if you can get an attractive female that you're interested oh, in to play chess against you. Woman. I mean, you know that, yeah. that that could be very exciting. Um, yeah, but uh, were, you, were you good at chess? I was. I was good. Good enough. Uh, they were. They were better, but they were the, the really nerdy ones. Obviously, I said that with a snigger because obviously I was quite nerdy at the time because I was playing chess. Well, you must have a. I mean, you've got a head for figures. Uh, yeah, so I was on. Like I was at Captain Common recently, and I wa- well this morning, and I was admiring many figures. But um, uh, well, uh, funny the, the the greatest chess moment of my life, and we have got distracted, but that's no, that's good. Was, I, was I was in. Uh, I did skiing for the first time, which is a crazy thing. You, you you're in, uh, and obviously because I'm you know I'm not necessarily cheap, but I like to do things in a sort of cost efficient manner, and Bulgaria seemed a a cheap, cost efficient way to learn skiing. So we did. And then on the last day, they offered us a tour through the capital of Sofia. Harry, so you went to Bulgaria to, to ski. ski. And I did. And it was amazing. I, 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 I'm completely converted to skiing. Um, it, was, it was about half the price of anywhere else. And the beers were fairly cheap. And we were sort of in quite a rural village. So we had all these crazy um, Bulgarian foodstuffs and lots of meats. And it was lovely. But, uh, yeah, in, in Sofia, one of the sports, because I think Bulgaria does handball water polo, weightlifting, and chess. So, obviously, because uh, I wasn't about to play water polo, uh, and, you know, they, they, I didn't really feel like living, lifting up a statue, I was in the park, and there were tons of chess, and there's chess hustlers in, 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 in Bulgaria, and they'll come up to you suggesting a game. 
So I was running through this park, and there was a and there was a fountain, and you know, stone things. This guy comes up, going, "You oh, know, would you like to play a game?" I was like, "Okay." I don't. Know. I would be talking about it, so all my mates were with me. We're going, "Yeah, he'll play a game." <laughs> I had to pay one lev, which is I think about, uh, I think it was about fifty p. I was like, "Yeah, fair enough." They, they, they. and and so I was, here I was in this Bulgarian park with what looked like a homeless man who had a chessboard, chess pieces on a cardboard thing with a chess clock. Now, if you've done the world of chess, you know that a chess clock means they they, they kind of know what they're doing. Yeah. So, and, and you play the first couple of moves and if you haven't played chess for a while, it's nerve-wracking. You can feel people watching you um, and, and chess in the beginning is quite cagey because yeah, yeah. you've got, you're waiting for the move to come I, I play that chess. can open it up. Oh, well, everyone, every person of calibre should play chess. My dad was the chess club uh, it ran the chess club in my primary school. And that's, it's, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 a good it's a good thing. Any ages, any sexes, they can all play chess. I'm not chess. very good at it though. I'm not as good. I'm, I can beat a child. That's about it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, a slight, slightly slightly dodgy. It's quite scary though. How young kids? It's like gymnastics. You can get gym, young gymnasts, but you can get young chess players who are really good. Oh yeah. I've never worked that all out, but um, that's true. Actually, my nephew can beat me. Uh, and then you get these really good ones, and uh, I don't know whether this one was good, but basically I hadn't played for a while. I was a bit nervous. Everyone was watching, um, and so I got into the situation. He, had, he was, I was on the back foot here. Then uh, he plays a couple of moves, and I'm really on the back foot. So I don't know what to do, and then suddenly I see the slight weakness in his defence. Three moves later, I checkmated him, and I think I must have been the worst ever loser. Because I, I, I mean, winner. Because I jumped up. And was like, yeah, yes. <laughs> and In else your was so face, homeless-looking guy. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and and it was hilarious. I, I must admit, I was I was very bad. I let him keep his money, um, and I kind of sort of walked around. And the people, the annoying thing is, I did this so quickly, with such like a smug look on my face, that people around uh, who had been watching thought that he'd beaten me, and that I just walked away because you know. Just, <laughs> but I was like, yes, I beat that fucker. And so it was, it was, it was, it was, and it was great. It was better than being able to do my first blue run by myself. Um, so yeah, you know, chess, chess can be fun. Uh, and and I remember we talked about chess because of something else, but I can't remember exactly what that well, something else we, was. Well, you were going to tell us about the time when you you played the hippo. Oh game. yes, yes. So so it all starts. So basically, we've gone from the Misty Jets to chess, and chess is more interesting than the Misty Jets. Well, no, we're going to we're going to well, get to your mum. Chess first, is though. more interesting than Misty Jets. Well, yeah, I know you. you, you we're not going to get to my mum. No, no, well. No, you were saying the first, but but the first. Worst. Yes, bad experience was playing playing after the Happy Hippo when I was fifteen, and these were ten-year-old kids, and they didn't really like bagpipes. I wonder why, but maybe you have something to do with young people don't like bagpipes. Well, there were ten. They probably wanted to. Yeah, and there was this giant green hippo, and anyway, suffice to say, it was not the environment that an impressionable fifteen-year-old wanted to find himself in at that time. So you were looking for hot 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 girls and you found yourself well, I tell you I children. wasn't looking for uh, annoying 10 or 8 year olds that I certainly wasn't doing um, so that was quite bad and then the, and then you know we went forward a couple of couple of years and, and somehow some cat from the Misty Jets I believe they're a band and their dad runs the band now it's all well and good for a dad to run the chess club I think that's a very noble activity but you know 
Bad running the band. Dad running the band. They're a relatively successful band, though, aren't they? They are relatively successful, but uh, you know, it's in a genre that, although I can understand, I don't really appreciate. They are shit. They are shit. Well, uh, you know, we, we, everyone needs a nemesis in life, and that's that's. So, how did you come to work with the Mystery Jets? You haven't actually. Like every great relationship on Gumtree, funny enough, I think. Or they found me on the internet. They called me. They said they were a band called the Mystery Jets, rehearsing an album, and they wanted some bagpipes. I asked someone, and apparently they said the Mystery Jets were sort of popular. So I was like, okay, Mystery Jets, you know, I'll do it. I quoted them a nice enough fee. I would have done it for free anyway, because that's, you know, to contribute to music would have been nice. And go to these studios, which were the ones which were owned by uh, the guy from Dire Straits. Uh, who the, who's them? I only, whenever I think of Dire Straits, I think of uh, that song Calling Elvis, which is great. The blonde one. Oh, I don't know. Oh, fuck it. I Jarvis Cock, no, he's no, not. No, Jarvis no, Cocker is in pulp. I am a fan yes, of pulp. Yeah, um, like yeah if it's not metal, I don't know it. Um, but <laughs> So I, I pitched up, and it took me a while to do all the notes, because I was still in that phase where I wasn't really, uh, you know, a bagpipe, I can hear bagpipe music, but when it comes to other music and translating, it's tricky stuff. So I did this, and it was all well and good, and I felt, I felt very proud. I was quite nervous. I wore skinny jeans for the first time to be hipping with it. Um... <laughs> And uh, yeah, it was also. I'd recently, I'd, a couple of weeks before, I'd been to a music festival, which I think everyone should go to a music festival. And then the, the and I found this penguin mask lying around. So I carried, yeah, yeah cause it, and, and I was like, oh, this is good. So I stuck, sort of stuck it on the side of my bagpipe case because, you know, it's a penguin mask. This is an impressive thing here. This is, you know, it's not quite the Colosseum, but it's something nice. And they got all excited. So I ended up playing in a penguin mask there and laying down some stuff and. You know, just, uh, just being a bit, being myself really. And, and nothing, I forgot about this for ages. You know, it takes, it's amazing how long it takes to make an album if you're supposedly, you know, actually any band takes forever to make an album. And then they, then they get, well, they don't get back to me. I, I text them to find out how things go and nothing. And then I sort of one day I Google and I see that there's all these interviews with Mr. Jets about their new album. And instead of talking about their new album, they slagging me yeah, off. They, they go, oh, we had a bagpipe in a penguin mask. Uh, uh, one of the, their best comment was sort of uh, that, you know, last time we got Laura Marling, now we got uh, a, a, some coked up city trader. That's right, it's a coked up city trader, uh, which is, to be fair, there is, you, you might be in, work in the city sometimes, but you are not coked up. And I'm certainly not rich enough to be a trader. <laughs> uh, so, uh, dear viewers, I'm now just going to put a pizza in the oven, but we'll carry on. That's good. Because, and you're going to get a beer, another beer, uh, another yeah. Another premium lager, yeah. That's that's fine. Um, if, if that's okay, that's, that's, course, that's a yeah. bit presumptuous of me when I'm in your, no, in your yeah. humble abode. Yeah. In uh, in 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 South London. Um, Clapham Common in a in a ex council estate because I'm keeping it real. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you're keeping it real, but you know. It's part of being black, Dave. It's part of being black. It is. Um, right, okay. Let's talk about that then, Vaughan. Being black. Yeah, why do you call yourself black? Well, let's face it. The world's pretty screwed up with um, people and racism. Racism is a massive issue, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yes, you're right, Vaughan. Throughout the entire world, you know... The problem is Vaughn's trying to read the, the uh, pizza, pizza instructions at the same <laughs> Isn't time. It's amazing how talking he never about gets, race. He never says, well, put it on at this temperature. No, there's a little, there's a diagram of a nuclear radiation sign <laughs> and three fire, three flames. I think the nuclear radiation sign, I'll go with that one. Um, 
Uh, but they don't also. Oh, amazingly, they don't say how long it'll be in there for. Um. Well, I. It's yeah, only about fifteen minutes. Well, minutes. yeah. Uh, but yes, yeah. So being black. So we've got this 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 world we live in, which you know, there's all these issues. But you know, compared to pedophilia, racism probably isn't as um, offensive. I don't know. Well, um, I, I, I depends I on your depends on your time, place, and location. Well, you you can't just sort of just. It's. I don't think there has to be a league table of what's the worst kind of nastiness. Uh, <laughs> oh shit. Um, I think you're supposed to put it on a tray. Yeah, well. Well, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It works. If it works for Jamie Oliver, it'll probably work for me. Yeah, I guess so. Um, no, it's hmm. good. I, it's I, got I, a sort of saggy edge. I, I, I just close that oven and hope <laughs> for the best. Yeah, let's hope there's no fire along. Anyway, so you know, we and. And, you know, I'm South African, so I've I've lived through apartheid. Obviously, on the on the side that wasn't as in trouble, uh, and and you know, and and now there's new South Africa, and everyone's integrating and all this sort of thing. But there's still, you know, racism is prevalent everywhere you go. Um, right. You. I mean, I, I was reading recently. There's this Chinese phenomenon kid who's playing the piano like an absolute genius. Yeah. And he's touring England to try and get people interested in playing the piano. Yeah. Do you think he's going to actually succeed? I don't know. Do you know why he's not going to succeed? Why not? Because English kids go, he's Chinese, he's a genius, he can do that. You know, it's a... It's a so they just assume because he's Chinese, he's Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just another it's type of racism yeah, out yeah. there. And, you know, it's, uh, it's you know, like, who was the best kid in class in maths? Oh, the Chinese kid, you know. So, so uh, you know, I don't have anything wrong with that. I freely accept that I have prejudices. Um, you know, they, they, I like to play cricket and there's lots of prejudices in cricket. If you see a, a very tall, uh, you know, a very tall person, you're going to assume he's a Foss bowler. If you see a very tall Scottish person, you're going to assume they're not going to be able to play cricket. Um, and just like that. So, and then one day uh, I, I met a mate from Cape Town. Now I'm from Durban. Cape Town's far away. It's the nicest city in South Africa by miles. Um, a lovely guy, and then he sort of saying, "Stay black," and I was like, "Hmm, what does that mean?" And and, and from this chat, I sort of started saying, "Stay black," also because if you think about it, st "stay black" instantly means be cool. Now, Fonzie was cool, right? And I know we've had this conversation before. Fonzie, um, uh, Bob Marley's cool. Uh, the West Indian cricketer Kirtley Ambrose is cool. Um, there's uh, oh god, who's that guy in uh Quentin Tarantino movie, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Jackson, he is incredibly cool. Chris Gale is cool. There are lots of cool black people. Yes, and so yeah. basically, <laughs> well, you know, staying black means being cool, chilled out, relaxed. Yeah. And, and, uh, and you know, I think it's very good because uh, it, it's difficult to say this is true, but a lot of the time, you know, it, it, b black people have been negatively stereotyped. I mean, that's fair to say. So you so it, it is fair to say. Oh, obviously it's fair okay. To good. Say. So, so I'm not going to deny this is that. A one. You know, having a spot positive spin on any sort of racial stereotype can only be a good thing. So you, you, when you say stay black, you are enforcing a positive stereotype. Positive racial stereotyping, which is what the world needs. We but need more positives. And when you describe yourself as black, that's because uh, uh, well, that's that that's uh, that's that's different because stay black is the same, whereas being black is something different. Um, it's interesting because in South Africa, the original people of South Africa weren't the Zulu and Kwanzaa tribes that we you know 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 about nowadays. Um, Nelson Mandela's in you know 
forefathers weren't necessarily the black people you you know they weren't the first people there they were they were bushmen which is probably the closest related to sort of like north american indians yeah, yeah. and and then obviously all these big tribes from north came and absolutely smashed them and took over their way of life and then obviously what happens the dutch and the english then came along with and did sort of a similar sort of thing so um when you know when you when you being 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 black is really being African in South Africa. There's a big saying in one of the the uh, the TV shows. I you know I am an African, and, and the second president of the democratic uh, of democratic South Africa, Thabo Mbeki, started his, his uh, speech like that. And you know I think that you know being black is maybe to me being black is being African, and I'm an African. Well, you are an African. Yes, and I am black. Well, you're not black. <laughs> this is racial, racial oppression. It's stereotyping. It's not. It's not. Can't it's judge just, someone by the colour of their Look at me. I am lying on just, a couch with my feet up, being cool. Can I stay any less black than this? Yeah, look, it is just observation that you are not, uh, not black. It is not racial stereotyping. But I mean, obviously, you know that. Um, and when we, we when we when we did a gig, I think it was in the Bull and Gate. I remember. Um, Taking, trying to, trying to get you to say, to, to explain to some black people why you were black. And, and I did say, I'm sure I said you that. know, you ran pretty quick out of that. Well, you know, place. I was only new from South Africa, so I'm sure I <laughs> just maybe worried about them. But as a white South African, I think it is quite brave for you to go around sounding like you're so racist. Well, well, but I mean, I'm, I, not, I, I'm not being racist. No, no, no. I don't, <laughs> I don't think that you are racist, and I don't think you're being racist. Mm. But I think that as a white South African, people are going to assume that you are being racist. Which is just another form of racism, isn't it? It's like, what, can, what? What worst racism can there be when people racistly assume that you're racist? <laughs> um, well, incidentally, the, the, the listeners will be pleased to know that racism is now gone in South Africa. There's something new called xenophobia, which is um, possibly comes under my definition of racism. Uh, did you watch District 9, you know, with the aliens? Yeah. Uh, and they put the aliens in, in, in camps away from the other people. Yeah. And, mm, this is, you know, does this not sound familiar from somewhere? And they were oppressed and discriminated against. Uh, do you remember who the villains in that movie were? They were a group of Nigerians who were oh, yeah, they, yeah, that's right. The, doing yeah, all yeah. the crazy shit. Now, this is okay in South Africa now, because we've gone past, we're not racist anymore. We now discriminate against foreigners. So a lot of um, Nigerians get attacked in South Africa, which is obviously awfully sad, but um, it sort of says something that even though, you know, South Africa is supposedly, you know, less non-racial, which incidentally it probably isn't. They, there's this whole xenophobic thing, which I think xenophobia is as bad as racism. Absolutely. Well, think about well absolutely, Vaughan. And I would agree with you, and it is it would be ridiculous to ever suggest that only white people are racist. No. I mean... Africa, the continent of Africa, has proved time and again that, that black against black uh, wars yeah. and terrible, terrible things can, can have terrible racism in. Yeah. Um, in the communities that I work in, the uh, Caribbeans and the Africans hate each other quite a bit sometimes. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's, there's even, there's even uh, racism between um, Greek Cypriots and Greek... Um, oh, wow. Another bit uh, Greek Cypriots and um, oh, other Greeks. The ones Greek who Greeks. aren't Cypriot, yeah, the Greeks. Mm. Uh, oh, actually, and, and there's even some tensions between some Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriots. There's all sorts of things. So I'm not saying that the uh, that the landscape is just white people bad. Uh, all other races oppressed by white people. 
However, you lived under apartheid. Um, I did. And what was that? What was that like as a white South African? It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's kind of it was a safe place. Um, You know, it, it was. All the white people were in the suburb, all the people with the same ideas, the same cultures were in one area, and all the supposedly dangerous black people were put in areas far away. And what, what South Africa did was, and apartheid, was they made classism, which I think every person's, even more so than racism is prevalent, they made classism racism by making all the black people, the poor people. They, it, you know, during the original days of apartheid, they made there was a lot of uh, works programs for what poor white people to to do things and build infrastructure and stuff, which wasn't sort of given to the black people. So you had these lovely, beautiful middle class suburbs without a hint of any sorts of um, social underclass, and it made life, to be honest, as rosy as as it could be. My my family were safe and happy and all that sort of thing. Then when apartheid went away. Then suddenly you had all these uh, middle, middle-aged South Africans who were used to this sort of environment having a new dynamic force change. And in addition, with the abolition of the Group Areas Act, all the uh, poorer people sort of came out of this. It was sort of coming into the middle-class suburbs and that. So suddenly you had this massive mixing and you had a whole bunch of people who, A, um, you know, because of their social circumstances may be forced to do crime. And I'm just saying something. No, I, I think that's... And, a, you... and, and suddenly you've got this crazy place. And well, my, my parents were absolutely terrified and they still are. And it's quite a sad situation that a lot of South Africans just can't really sort of accept what's happened and they sort of still live in fear. Well, I like that. I like that that analysis of it though that it that, I mean that it was a class that mm. I mean I think that that was a very it's a very yeah. even-handed and uh, accurate in my view having never been to South Africa not knowing anything about it you can mm. see similar parallels with this country yeah. racism in this country is really about fear of po- poor people yeah um, not fear of uh, yeah. colour fear of the hoodie I mean I'd never known yeah, much about I hate the hoodie that and now the hoodie is very scary and you know I'm going to be honest enough to say that if uh, I and I spoke to my flatmate about this and she was walking home one day and she said she felt more frightened if there were four guys in hoodies or four black guys who were looking like that rather than you know say four normal people going out in the town and you know, is that racism or is that just maybe, you know, it is probably statistically more likely that a bunch of hoodies would, would mug it. Yeah, it's a complicated thing when you sort of look at statistics versus cultural attitudes and stuff mm, like that. Mm. I do know what you mean. Mm. Although I'd say, I mean, hoodie has become something that, I mean, I've got a hoodie. I do, I do. Exactly. I have black friends. Well, <laughs> that's a, that, uh, everyone put his thumb up for the, uh, the benefit of the tape. Yeah. But um. But no, I mean, I, I would assume that you would have black friends coming from South Africa and having had apartheid end mm-hmm. when you were a kid. How did you feel, though, you? I mean, your parents were scared. How did you feel? Well, there's not much you, you can do, because, uh, you know, I remember the day that uh, there were two... Our, our school had two black kids in our standard, which came in. Uh, you know, they were just normal normal dudes. I mean, you find that it, it's a cult... There's massive cultural differences, and you'd expect that, but... Uh, you know the, the first the first black kids that went to our schools were probably a little more Eurocentric anyway so it was a little bit easier to, for them to fit in and so it went along I mean with uh, my did you go to a private school then? no uh, my parents weren't particularly rich it was a just government school oh right so, so uh, and they and he and uh, I remember well my my 
best black friend is a chap called Goodman who's more erudite uh, and posh than any uh, <laughs> the most white guys I knew in South Africa. Uh, so it's clear that he, you know, he was quite educated and understood how sort of South Africa worked, um, you know, and how people were in that. I think what as South Africa became more integrated, you had these cultural issues. I mean, be it something like music, you know. Uh, it, it's no generalization to say most white kids would like house music. Most Indian people would like uh, very, very loud house music with speakers at their own clubs. Uh, and the black people would like their sort of, um, what was called Kwaito, which is sort of Zulu hip-hop, and they like hip-hop too. So you naturally, it, it, when it came to socializing, it wouldn't necessarily work just as well as, you know, I don't do hip-hop and I don't hang out with, uh, I don't go out to hip-hop clubs. So it sort of worked on that, but now what's happening is as the you know it sort of seeped away. There's a lot. There's a rising black uh, sort of middle and 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 more sort of wealthy class, and, and they are and you know they sort of enduring uh, opulent surroundings as as much as any other person. Apparently, the big thing in South Africa now is eating sushi off the naked woman or woman in bikini. That's big. Amongst who? No, just everyone. It's a new posh thing to do. Um, you know, you get, apparently you get a woman in a bikini and people eat uh, sushi of her. Well, that's incredibly degrading for the woman. Well, you know, we've never said... Uh, I mean, <laughs> never said South Africa was perfect. And I can't particularly <laughs> approve of it. I found the idea amusing. No, Presumably they get paid quite a lot of money. The, um, yeah, I mean... What it, do we call them? Plates? I guess... Human could, plates, yeah. You could call them plates. I mean, would you rather be a human plate or a human shield? I think I'd prefer to have sushi ate off me than, than have to, to sell my body in other ways, I think, probably. Yes, yeah. Well, it depends to whom, too. But, yeah, I don't want any chopsticks near my navel, thank you. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's an, interesting, an interesting sort of thing. Incidentally, I once did... Um, I just broke up with my first girlfriend. Have you ever... You know, the first, not first girlfriend, the first one you really loved, you yeah. know? And I was very sad. And then... Uh, someone was looking for a bagpiper to play at a ladies' night, and so I ended up being a sort of half stripper for a while. And so people did actually eat sort of strawberries off me, um, which was fun. It was when I was thinner and more beautiful than I am currently now. It was lo- it was it was wonderful, and uh, I felt very. I didn't feel degraded in any way. Um, you know, I it was uh, it was a very exciting time. Apart from the the bite marks on my bum after one night, um, you know, it was generally very very pleasurable. Didn't do it for too long, obviously, but, you know, it's something fun to do. Well, that's true. And, I mean, I would never judge anybody for doing anything. I just mean that it, it, it says something about the cultural attitude towards mm. the person if they're doing that. Whether it's you yeah. or, or that woman, I guess. But although it depends. I mean, that consent is an important thing, like you say. Yeah, you know, that if, if you speak to the governor of the World Bank, um, he'd probably tell you that consent is a very big thing at the moment, <laughs> isn't it? You shouldn't, um, yeah, I mean, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't start slagging him off in, in your industry. Yeah, no, well, it's fair enough. He's, you know, he did, he, he did something. I mean, I think uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is an interesting one, isn't he? I mean, how can that man do wrong, yet he's done wrong? That's impossible. He was meant to be the best of us. I never thought he was the best of us. He was quite good at being a robot in my favourite film. Exactly. How good is that? I mean, surely that can pardon a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, well... Not everything, but... Jesus, I mean, like, Terminator 1 and 2 are probably in my top ten films of all time, yeah. But uh, Mm. that doesn't mean that I have much respect for Arnold Schwarzenegger. I do do find him funny, though. He can be amusing. 
It's great, isn't it? He's unreconstructed, though, isn't he? And that's why yeah. that's it's like Boris Johnson. It's like the charm of Boris Johnson, oh, yeah, and the charm yeah, yeah. of Ken Clark, uh, who's also yeah. in the headlines at the yeah, moment. But oh, just but, 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 shut their mouths. But, <laughs> Why am but, I doing this podcast thing? <laughs> but but there is a there is a sort of attraction, I guess, of this un, un, unreconstructed kind of thing, which I guess mm. South Africa has in spades, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I was uh, I was thinking about it, and uh, well, Arnold Schwarzenegger went to visit the troops in Iraq, and he basically said, you know, in Terminator, I was the Terminator, now you are the Terminator. I was like. That's hilarious. I found it funny. Anyway. Yeah, it's funny. I was, I was smiling. Saying, yeah, you are the Terminator, and you know, it's just—it's—I uh, it, don't know. It's—it's it's just, it's just a bit strange. One of those lovely anomalies about life that we've got an actor, an Austrian actor who was a former, you know, bodybuilding champion. He's a governor, governor in California. California yeah. Yeah. It, well, it—that's the kind of contradiction that your life. Uh, I, I encourages. Think, I think that's the most lo- the, that's the loveliest thing about life. I mean, the current band I play in Monkish, we play at punk festivals mainly to guys in uh, you know with mohawks and that. But we are very camp and have lots of feather boas. And one of our songs is actually, and the lyrics are sung very quickly by the lead singer who is not very understood. But it's basically absolutely shredding the average punk person who just sort of sleeps around in the gutter and then goes to a gig. And uh, you know they still seem to, still seem to love us, and we we love. Um, I mean, one of our my favourite gigs last year was playing at a bowling alley where there were basically lots of corporates, and so all these guys in suits, and then we sort of rock up on stage and sort of insult them and try and you know play with them. I like that. But when, but quite yeah. a lot of the time, you're the guy in the suit. I like that even more. I, I mean, I like the fact that you can be corporate and have a life and do things uh, that are that, you know geared to fulfilling your job and then other times you can do the you can do the complete opposite it's like doubling your life isn't it yeah being I able to be able to sort of play in a punk band and work as a corporate restructurer is sort of you know it adds so much more to your life and corporate restructuring that what is that again? oh he says that with a glint in his eye <laughs> knowing that I told him that I once had to fire people when companies are in trouble they can't pay their loans back to the bank. Except, unlike uh, a sort of a person with, a, say, a house and mortgage, this is a, um, well, this is, this is something, a lot more, this is a business. So what we do is we try and assist the bank in saying, what should they do? The bank, the, you know, the, the business can't pay back its money. Should we loan them more money? Should we just agree to a consensual cut of the debts? Or should we throw it into administration? What's the best way of getting it out? And so that's sort of what we do. And yes, that sometimes means we have to make people redundant. But the idea is hopefully that we're actually saving more people, which is, I suppose, I have to think like that. But it's also... It's also kind of true. Well, that's what you've said to me before. You've said uh, you're saving, you know, five five thousand jobs and cutting five hundred. You know. Or... Well, you know, I mean, it's it, it, you, you, it is the optimistic way of, of looking at it. So if you were a pessimist, you could probably look at it the other way. But you know, it's what you need to do. It's uh, it's uh, this is this is complex business, and you know, the people. Why do you need to, need to do it? Well, do I need to particularly no, no, do? Well, no, not why do you as an individual? Why do does corporate restructuring have to happen? Well, I'd like to I'd like to think about it in this way. Um, there was a former drummer in my band, and maybe he's in an atmosphere but maybe he's listening because I think he still owes me two hundred and fifty quid. He does owe you money. Yeah. The bastard. And I, uh, it's got to that point now. I just don't, you know, I, I should probably hunt him down. I'm not. I'm quite a sort of 
I don't like confrontation and stuff, but I should do it. Well, maybe this will make him baby. Yeah. Maybe. Hello. I have my money. Um, but the point is that banks, okay, they, they are evil and they're big and, you know, there's many misconceptions and conceptions about them. But the fact is if they loan someone money, they expect them to pay it back. And if a business can't pay it back, then they someone needs to, you know, somewhere along the line they need to get, the, you know, it's... Uh, it's like if I was a bit more militant, maybe I would have, have taken, you know, the the TV of the person owing me, you know, £250 or something like that to, to get it back. And that, it's sort of similar to the same thing. Mm. I mean, I'm, it, it's difficult equating it to personal life, but I like to think that, if, you know, if I, if I borrow something from someone, I'll return it. In fact, today, you've returned three DVDs I like you. That's right. Which is quite funny, because I've forgotten about that. I was like, oh, there they are. Well, I think that... I think that borrowing people's things is important. Is imp- it's important to give them them back. I don't tend to borrow money where I can help it because I, mm. I, I prefer to receive money as a gift. Yes, yes, and yes, to yes, give yes, money yes. as a or gift. earn it. I mean, it was an interesting scenario. We played a gig in Berlin, and we played two gigs in Berlin. The second night, the beers were free, and the first night, you had to pay fifty p for the beer. And you know what? I felt better when I paid fifty p for it. Still can't work out why. That's why I think it's because I like you feel like you've earned it, you know. And 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 the thing is that yes, in many cases banks did the wrong thing by lending so much money. But if you're a business and you've lent that money, you it's part, and you've planned to lend that money. You need to be prepared to pay it back. But and isn't money just a fiction that we've created for ourselves? For oh, it's very deep, it's very deep for a man who's had a long day playing cricket. Already. That's right. Um, you know, I, I think. Yeah, it's it's binding yourself to the, to the thing. I mean, I don't know what bank. You know, a lot of the time, to be honest, banks do just write the money off because that's the best way of doing it. Um, not always, but you know, it's it's one of the options, and that's our it's our work to actually tell the bank, to give the bank the best option. But when and you go into when you go cool. into a company to restructure it, mm. do you ever say, well, the first thing that we should do is stop paying all of you executives this amount of money? And we should give you the normal salary that the people on the shop floor are, pay, are getting paid. Well, the fa- we, we wouldn't do that make up for the thing without having to fire anyone? Well, um, if I, I'll answer it through a. Uh, as you've noticed, I like to talk and waffle. Um, Lehman's went into administration, and this is massive. And they are bankers, and they are very well-paid individuals. First thing the administrators did is they fired a lot of the people who ran all the systems and all that sort of thing. So, like, all right, we don't need you. We're going to do our own thing, and then. Six months later, they realised they had no idea what was going on, so they had to rehire them at a higher price. Problem with the executives is that you need them very often because they know the business and they understand the processes and what's going on. If we if we can if we can get rid of it, if if we need to get rid of individuals, we will. Um, and you know, it's very often very often done. I mean, you, you know, that's. If there is a way that we can save them, then we will do it. But we've, I'm, we've I'm got to be careful about trying because even if you pay someone a lower salary, the first thing they're going to do is be uncooperative, uh, and 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 that. And and one of the big things that administrators do is they make sure they address this message to the entire workforce that they will make sure that their wages are generally met if those that are, they are retaining, that they will you know that they will they set up performance bonuses because we know that the most important thing in a business is people. And they need to be reimbursed as to how they expect to in order to get the uh, in order to get their best performance. But it's people that you're laying off. 
the thing is, I, I, I accept, and you know, you might think I don't, and people, people might be surprised to hear me say this, but I accept that within the logic of the current world we live in, and it's, yeah, it's a good time for you to go and get the pizza because I'm just checking. Out. No, it's a good time because I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be talking for a little bit of time here. Is this what you call in, in drama a soliloquy? It might. It, we can call it that if you like. But I, I, Dave faces the crowd. <laughs> I accept <laughs> that within the current situation that we are in, within the current society that we have, the logic that you follow makes some kind of sense. Like I do not think that you are morally objectionable for being a human being within the system that we have. And you know... But I do think that the system that we have is pretty damn rotten. And I think that your job is the enforcer of that system. So it's, it's a little bit like saying, and I do think this, that a SS guard is a human being and shouldn't be uh, blamed for the system that they're in. However, the actions that they take and the... Uh, ability that they have to do that job need to be considered mm. and you do you, you know you're a very strange you're an enigma one and that's why I, that's why I'm interested in you like you because you, in your day job you restructure organizations before that you were a chartered accountant for mm. uh, a company I, I nearly yeah. named, named them but I'm not going to um, that everyone will have heard of yes and Big in Asia. Yeah, and, and yet, um, in your time out from that, you are into heavy metal, you dress in a leather kilt, a PVC kilt, and you, you know, are pretty insane. Well, in a good way, in a yeah, good yeah, way, yeah, enjoyable I think, way. I think one thing with regards to my work is that um, I'm, although I do do some work in administrations and making people redundant, which I've, I mean, literally in three and a bit years of sort of being the sidekick to a person once. Um, and I like numbers. I love numbers. I love Excel spreadsheets. I love Excel. I mean, you know, in my band that I started for a while, wrote a song about it. The, I, I like am numbers. the Excel master. Yes. It's a good yes, song. Yes, it's yes, it's yes, one yes. of my favourite songs that you've written. Yeah. There are only about six, but yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> I mean, certainly the other song about a man who was sleeping with large amounts of women is... Uh, you know that's not really that, that, that's questionably it's questionable morally in today's society. <laughs> um, whereas you know uh, my my Excel, I love numbers. I use them to ha to provide the solution. So yes, I am a cog in the big machine, but um, you know it's I, I, I'm not the I'm not the SS god who's shooting the escaping prisoner. No, I'm, re I'm sort of the person who's planning what should be done beforehand, which I agree is is, is part probably part of the solution. Um, part of the problem. But the thing is, you know, you can't change the system. Mm. So, like, what I said to you earlier on was slightly unfair. Mm. You can't go in and make those people who I believe should be paid a hell of a lot less, and I don't know what you believe, but mm. it doesn't matter, you can't change that part mm. of it. You can improve other things for the people who are paying you that will make those... Or mm. those those organisations function better mm. at being capitalist organisations. You can improve that, and that's what you do. And also, to be honest, uh, it's a funny thing, but sometimes, I mean, one of the companies I'm looking at now, 
there's one very rich individual who do, who's doing it all, and there's a lot. Of, you know, the the property is worth fifty million less than how much the banks lent them, and that individual has been responsible for that. And quite frankly, he, he deserves whatever he's done. And a lot of the time in businesses, when you work in a business, you're, you're, uh, you're dependent on what the boss does and what the company's strategy is. And a lot of the time, those aren't necessarily always right. Yeah, but though that logic is fine. Mm. I mean, I don't like it. I don't agree with the system. Mm. But that logic is fine when those organisations are successful at what they do. So if, in your example... If this guy has been good at his job, then arguably he, sh- he deserves the money, right? But the current situation we are in, the banks were not the good at their job, yeah. and we're okay. still paying them the money. And, and, and it, is, it is a tricky situation. I mean, we don't, offer, we don't look... Bear in mind, banks employ us rather than uh, you know, us necessarily working with banks. We are dependent on the good charity and good fortune and, 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 and such like that. But I mean, you know, it is, I, I agree, sometimes... It, Sometimes it is a it is a tricky situation, but uh, uh, a lot of the time we do help people, and a lot of the businesses, um, what we try and do is is give them the best chance they can. If we're reviewing a business on, on behalf of the bank, we'll try and help them to get the best information that they can get, so that there is actually a good answer. Um, if whether that answer is necessarily what the bank wants and whatever they need to do, yeah. But I mean, as I say, the fact is, if you if you lend millions of pounds. To a uh, to a business and the business takes that money, you know they are sort of indebted. <laughs> it's not quite Darwinian, but um, you know it's it's the one thing. That, I mean, I was I started corporate structuring the, in the recession, and one of the things it did was weed out the really bad businesses, which is ruthless, isn't it? But then nature is ruthless. But uh, you know, there's a lot of businesses that are badly run. And the, the, you know, and those, and they developed problems really quickly in the recession. They didn't know how to, they didn't know how to do things properly. And um, you know, I, I don't like. To, I'm not saying that I'm God's executioner or anything, but you know, recessions actually helped weed out those businesses. If we we wouldn't we wouldn't be uh, shouting at the banks now um, unless there was a recession, except for the old jealousy thing, which I must admit I'm as jealous as the next person about. Love to be a banker and rich. Well, you could. You, you, why couldn't you be a, a banker and rich? You're an accountant. You I should. spent. I spent a year at. Um, I spent a year doing that at a uh, a big investment bank that no one likes. Um, it was so boring. I had to leave. I had low self-esteem. It was tremendously boring. I was. Oh God. It was horrible. I think I may have burnt the pizza talking about horrible, but we'll have a look here. That's okay. So uh, uh, on that cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. Uh, yeah, ah! that, that cliffhanger. I think we'll call this end of part one. Oh, there we go. And then uh, we'll do another one. I think because yeah, there's yeah, plenty more go. to get. We've, it's got, good. we've only got the tip of the iceberg, and we've got a very the, the pizza is not even around. <laughs> That's why we haven't even eaten the pizza yet. Part two of the Vaughan identity will be coming out on Friday. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, it's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.